right? I'm also a substitute teacher. And one day as I was subbing, I ran into a very interesting gentleman who told me that he also worked a second job at a call center. And so he began to explain to me how this call center worked. Basically, different companies would hire them to answer the phones for them and then to sell their products. So fundraisers, infomercials, tele-evangelists would hire this call center to answer the phones. And so one day, this gentleman was answering the phones, and this, this nice elderly lady called in and wanted to buy a backup generator. And she said, Pastor so-and-so said that she would need this generator for the end times. And that if she called in right now, she would get the perfect generator at just the right price for the end times. Then she began to unfold the story and she begins to explain to this this man that she's not sure exactly how she's going to pay for this generator because she's on a fixed income. But the pastor said she needed it, so she was going to make it work. And this gentleman began to take the next 30 minutes and instead of trying to sell her a generator, began to explain to her that God wants her to spend her money wisely. And that means putting food on the table instead of paying for an overpriced generator. This woman had bought into a very convincing lie. That's what is happening in our passage this morning. That is what's happening in the first century church. Peter is writing because false teachers are coming into the church and they're leading people astray. The false teachers were corrupting the way people thought. And as their minds were corrupted and their thoughts were corrupted, eventually their lifestyle would also become corrupted. So Peter's writing to remind them, to correct them. He's writing to warn them about this false teaching and these false doctrines. And we too, we need this warning. The world is full of false teachers who claim to be Christians. And our passage this morning is teaching us that in the the midst of a world full of false teachers, believers in Jesus Christ must never lose sight of the certainty and the hope in the Word of God. For it assures us of the future. And so we see as chapter 3 opens up, We see Paul is writing this section of the letter to deal with a very particular problem. False teaching about the second coming. And in verse 3, Peter says, These false teachers will come in the last days. See, Peter wasn't just warning the church about something to come. The first century church was already dealing with false teachers. When Peter uses the phrase, the last days, he's not using it like modern Christians use it. We often think of the last days as some future event that will someday take place. Peter's using the phrase very biblically. It's, he's referring to the time period when Christ first came and when Christ will come back the second time. That is the last days. 
the first century church were, was already living in these last days, just as, as we are living in the last days. He was dealing with a church that was already facing false doctrine. This is probably one reason why, why Peter refers so specifically to the taunts and to the scoffing that these teachers were leveling at the church. They were making fun of Christians basically for their antiquated beliefs. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And so here's their, their, their basic argument. Listen. Jesus said he's coming back soon. Where is he? He said there would be judgment. I don't see judgment. In fact, the world continues to spin and continues to function just like it did from the very beginning. Where is this Jesus you talk about? And so naturally, people in the church would hear this and they would begin to doubt. And they would look around and they would say, wait a minute. People are beginning to die. Some of the disciples are even beginning to pass away. Where is Jesus? Why hasn't he come back? And then slowly after that doubt creeps into their minds, their lives begin to reflect that corruption. Their moral standards slip and they begin to live like pagans. And this is one reason that Peter, throughout the letter, consistently couples false teaching with immorality. I grew up in a Christian home, but when I went off to college, I stopped reading the Bible. I just got to the point where, in my mind, the Bible created more questions than I was able to answer. And so I began to, began to doubt, and I began to wallow in that doubt. And, and God's priorities were no longer my priorities. And I got to the point when I started dating Kate, my wife, she almost didn't marry me. She believed that I was a Christian, but there was no evidence in my life to support that fact. The, the interesting thing is, during this entire time, I was going to church regularly. I was a member of one of the Christian student unions, but my mind was overcome with doubt and uncertainty. And then my life started to reflect that doubt. The modern church faces the exact same thing. We're bombarded with different ideas, different beliefs. And then slowly, we begin to have doubts. Sometimes those doubts consume our thinking. And our mind openly wrestles with the questions and the issues. While other times, the doubt just slips in under the radar screen. And we would never deny Christ. We would never openly disagree with what the Bible says. 
But we also don't live like we believe what God commands is true. Our doubt in what Christ has said starts to manifest itself practically in our fears and in our actions. Slowly, the people of God are tempted to believe man instead of the word of God. And so Peter responds to this. He responds to the false teacher. He encourages the church with one simple strategy, a reminder. He reminds them about the word of God and he reminds them of God's nature. That's why he wrote the letter. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior. And so Paul, Peter begins to lay out this reminder. And the first thing that Peter reminds them of is the power and the certainty of the word of God. Notice what the false teachers were saying. All these things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So what does Peter do? He takes them back to the word of God and reminds them what really happened. Verses 5 through 6. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Peter takes them back to creation, and then he takes them to the flood. You see, Peter understands history. The world has not always existed like it does now. There was a time when, when mankind was so wicked that God brought judgment down upon the earth. And in a flood, he destroyed everything that wasn't safely tucked away with Noah in the ark. The earth has not continued as it was from the beginning. But Peter has a second. He has a greater point in this passage. Notice what causes creation and the flood. The word of God. Peter is saying, just like God spoke and the world was formed, he spoke and all living creatures were given life. And then just as God spoke and the waters once again covered the earth in judgment. Just like that, God's word is powerful enough and trustworthy enough that when Christ says he will return, he will return. And then after this, Paul reminds them of the surety of God's word. Next, Peter encourages the church, excuse me, Peter encourages the church by reminding them about God's nature. Look at verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years 
as one day. Peter is reminding the church that time does not control God. God controls time. God's not like us. He's not bound by our 24-hour system. He stands outside of time, holding time in his hand, holding both the past and the present and the future, being able to see all at the same time. In his wisdom, he molds the future and he arranges the present for his glory and for our good and and to our mortal and finite minds. It seems that God is slow and he's not keeping his commandments and he's not keeping his word. But really, God is using time to his advantage. Peter reminds them, don't get discouraged. Don't lose hope. God is not limited by our calendar. The very, the final point that Peter brings together at the end of this passage concerns judgment. 2 Peter 3, 7. But by the same word, the heavens and the the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. You know, most of us read this verse and if we're honest, it doesn't really affect us. We've grown up in the church and we, we read right over it because we've, honestly, we've been desensitized. And then there are those here that read this verse and it makes them question God. Why does Peter speak about judgment? Why, does, why doesn't he speak about heaven? Why is God going to judge people? Isn't God loving? The reason behind both of these is the same. We don't truly understand the gravity of sin and we don't truly understand the character of God. Sin isn't something that we, we play around with. It's not just a term that we throw out to describe adultery or pornography. Sin happens when we don't love our neighbors as ourselves. It happens when we decide to turn our jobs or our spouses or our children into our sense of fulfillment instead of God. We're sinful every time we disobey God's commandments, doing things that he told us not to do or not doing things that he told us to do. And that sin is absolutely detestable in the sight of God. See, God is pure and he's holy. He's set apart. God is so pure and so absolutely holy that the children of Israel could not go up onto the Mount Sinai for fear that they would be destroyed because of their sins. But here's the thing. 
understanding sin and understanding God's nature shouldn't make this verse any easier for us. God's judgment should make us cringe. It should make us a little uncomfortable. You see, this isn't a Disney movie where no one really dies in the end. This is God's wrath poured out in fire upon those who refuse to repent of their sins and to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. This should make us weep for our neighbors. It should make us pray for our friends that don't know Christ. It should make us put aside our feelings of of awkwardness in sharing the gospel because we understand what the future holds. We understand what God has promised and the judgment that will consume the earth. Maybe you're sitting here and you're still... You still think it's unfair. You're still wrestling. And you say, I get the fact that God is pure. And and I understand that sin's really bad. But where is this God of love that you speak about? Look to the cross. Look to Christ who hung mangled on a cross for you. Look to the wrath of God poured out on Christ instead of you and me. Look to the anguish Christ felt as God the Father broke fellowship with him because of my sin. And because of your sin, look to Christ, the only Son of God, the only person that ever lived perfectly. And he took our sin. And in its place, he gave us his righteousness that only he earned. Do you know this Jesus? Have you put your trust in him alone for your salvation? If not, I would ask you, even now, in your seat, pray to God. Ask him to save you. And the word of God promises that he will save you. Do you really want to understand a loving God and a just God? Do you want to understand the judgment that our passage talks about? Then look to the cross of Christ. Look to the Christ and the judgment that our passage speaks about will begin to make sense. So where do we go from here? We go to the table to be reminded once again 
of what Christ has done for us. And then after we're reminded of Christ's body broken and his blood spilt out for us, then we go into the world living a life that understands the power of God's word and the certainty that exists in Christ's second coming. We go out with confidence and hope, knowing that what God said is true. We go out with a deep desire and a need to share the gospel with those that will will experience God's judgment unless they repent and turn to Christ. We must live with the certainty and the hope that what God said He will do by the very power of His Word. Amen and amen. Join me in prayer, please. Father, we are humbled to know that your son, Jesus Christ, died for us. That our sin was placed on him. And that he gave us his righteousness. Lord, we give you all honor. And all praise. Lord, and we ask. Lord, would you help us live with that certainty and that hope? Would you remove the doubt from our lives? That we may live to your glory and to your honor. And we ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.